0: Well, sometime this afternoon, not sure when, but uh, this feast will be half over. Can you believe it? But we have a bonus because we have the last great day, so don't get too sad yet. How do errors get into the Bible like the Trinitarian formula in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, and First John 5, 7 to 8, and... Ishtar in Acts 12, 4. Many believe that the Bible they have on their bookshelf is inspired. That it was, is free from any errors. I had a man call the other day. He was was adamant. The King James Bible has no errors. He said, none. And so I started to point out a couple. Oh, no, 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 no. I realized I wasn't going anywhere with him. say, so, well, have a good one. But, uh, no, the Bible we have. The Bible is inspired, don't get me wrong. But the Bibles that we have are not. Translations are not inspired. There's no perfect translation that conveys the exact inspired meaning and wording of the original autographs. Well, today we'll look at the art of translating and uncover some of the difficulties as well as some of the pitfalls that can occur when you're translating from an ancient text. And I would uh, advise you to prepare for some surprises. No other book in history has proven more accurate than the Bible. You compare the Dead Sea Scrolls with the Hebrew texts that we have, any, uh, they're they're right on. I mean, these, uh, especially in the Hebrew, it's right on. But when you get to the translations, that's when you got a problem in many ways. But the Bible has stood the test of time and shown itself to be completely reliable in terms of history, sociological truths, scientific observations, prophecies. It has not been proved wrong yet. A brother showed me this. I'm, I'm really excited to get into it. It's called Ancient Prophecies Revealed 500 Prophecies Listed in Order of when they were fulfilled. And it's, it's amazing. It, I mean, if you can't see Yahweh's inspiration through his prophecies and the fulfillment of them exactly down to the letter, then you, you don't know the Bible. So it's, it's, uh, it's 100% dead on. Of all the books ever published, we can say without hesitation that the Bible is the purest and the most accurate. The Bible should have the fewest errors of any book in the world because it claims holy inspiration, and therefore we would expect it to be error-free, of course, except for the (laughs) translations. The problem we must tackle is that all Bibles in existence that we have are translations. If we had the original inspired manuscript, we would have a perfect error-free book. But those manuscripts no longer exist that we know of. They became worn out. They became lost as they were passed from one congregation to another, like uh, Apostle Paul's letters. Uh, They were shared far and wide and they just, after a while, it's kind of like our books, they fall apart from use. What we have today are copies of copies from translations to translations. We're handicapped by the shortcomings of language as well as the fallibility of human translators, and that's where the Bulk of the problem lies. That's why we at Yahweh's Restoration Ministry make as one of our goals, one of our aims, is to bring back as much of the truth as we can by showing some of the errors in the King James. We chose that because, for a number of reasons, there's no copyright in the United States, and because we can tie Strong's Exhaustive Concordance and its numbering system to it, and the Prisoners just love it, because they can read it, they can go to the back, find the number of the word, go to the back, and look it up right there. No two, three extra books to mess with. They love it. And everybody else, too, should love it. I think most do. It's so easy to use. And we got, well, I won't say anything more about the next one. One of the problems in translating is that languages are never perfectly parallel in meaning. You cannot get one language next to another language and find perfect word-for-word equivalence. It doesn't happen. Languages are different. Their, Their words for certain things are different than another language. You can get it close, but you can't get it exactly dead on. Certain words simply lack the meaning of other words in other languages that are close but not on. Often a translator has to make a hard decision on word choices using his own skill as a you know, in biblical understanding. And therein lies another problem, because everybody, everybody approaches it with preconceived notions. You can't help it. You can't help it. If you're a translator, you have these ideas, and they're gonna come out one way or another as hard as you try not to. It's gonna come out to a certain degree, either in what, you know, the words you choose, how you do it, a lot of different reasons. Well, we see that in the word baptism, which in Greek means to overwhelm in water. Why didn't they translate it? Why didn't they tell us that? Because they wanted to hide aspersion. They wanted to hide sprinkling and pouring because that was their method of baptism. So if they had defined it, they would have blown their doctrine right out of the water. When you immerse something in water, that's not sprinkling and pouring. You don't bury somebody by sprinkling a little water on their head. But that's what baptism is. It's a burial, and it was left untranslated. And I believe to hide the sprinkling and pouring, which aren't scriptural. Take John 3.16. Whosoever believes in Yahshua, you know, the famous 3.16, whosoever believes in me shall not perish. That word believe, uh, people get the idea all you need is some kind of... Uh, uh, A thinking, uh, a mental uh, exercise, a faith, just kind of something nebulous. That's not what that word means if you look in the Greek. And that's as close as we can get right now. Pistil, 4,100, from pistis, which is derived from uh, pythomai, which means be persuaded, have confidence, and even obey. How about that? In the famous John 3,16, there's something you got to do. It's something you gotta do. There's an obedience you gotta have. But because of the translation, people look right past it, and of course they would, because it doesn't explain it further. Acts 17,2. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. As his manner was, he went on the Sabbath to worship. Manner is etho, 1486, as one custom is. This is what he customarily did. It wasn't just because he wanted to contact some Jews there in whatever synagogue he went to, but this is his manner. This is what he always did. He always went to the synagogue. That's not really brought out in just the word manner, but it's his custom. Translating the Bible has been ongoing since the third century BCE when the 70 or some say 72 Scholars, Jewish scholars, provided a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible for those Alexandrian Jews who had lost touch with the Hebrew and basically used Greek in their everyday life. So thus was born what they call the Septuagint, comes from uh, 770, the first ever attempt to translate the Bible in the Hebrew to another language. Well, today we look back at, one example showing how the English New Testament came into being. And we're going to see some key translation errors that have come up that have entered the text. And a lot of these things, probably most of them, we answer in footnotes in the RSB. Someone will call with a question. And one of the things they'll ask me is, do you have an RSB? You know, I don't want to reinvent the wheel. The answer is right there in your footnote. Just look it up. Look that passage up. Oh, you never thought about that. Yeah, I do have it. And, uh, uh, you know, it's amazing how many people have it. Somebody was telling me a, a Jew from, from Russia went to a Bible study here. I've forgotten where it was, somewhere back east in a Bible study. He had the RSB. And uh, it, it's, uh, it gets far and wide. And that's why we, you know, until you see his name in print, it doesn't quite register. You notice that? His name is Yahweh. But you see it. And people tell us, oh, now, now I see how important it is. It's right there in the scriptures. And that's where it was until they took it out and translated titles and other things there. So uh, we're just returning to the, uh, the original in many ways, as close as we can get. Well, today we're going to look at that, and there's some significant mistakes in some popular teachings. Now, uh, some people don't like the use of the word Old and New Testament, and I admit it's not—it's not totally accurate because really it's covenant. The, the word came from a Catholic uh, father, church father, you know, 400 years after the uh, New New Testament, after Joshua. Um, but we're going to—we uh, still use that because we have to communicate with people, and they have to understand what we're talking about, you know. And that's why. Uh, well, we, we don't use Bereshith for Genesis in here, although we do in the foreword explain that's where it really comes from. We don't call Exodus, Wella uh, Shameth, We don't call Leviticus, Way Ikra. They wouldn't understand. What's the point? You know, we're, we're defeating ourselves. Uh, we're, 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 I mean, we're, our truth, brethren, is obscure enough. To 99.999% of people out there, they have no clue. They have a hard time with, the simple elements of the truth, the basic elements. And we're going a whole lot deeper into it. We got to reach them. Uh, we don't call John Yachanan. We don't call James Yaakov. We know that those are the real names. But if you tell somebody, uh, look up uh, Yaakov 5 8, he's going to be looking back in the Old Testament, you know. Um, it ain't going to work. So we got to reach them where they are. And then, well, you know, it's kind of like Acts 15. When they couldn't figure out, do they have to get circumcised, become a Jew before they can come to the truth? And that was a big controversy. And it kind of blindsided the apostles. They hadn't heard that before. So they argued about it back and forth, back and forth. Finally, someone said, let's go to, let's go to the Jerusalem and talk to the, the pillars, you know, of the faith. And so James comes along. He says, my, my sentence is, or my decision is we get these people, these pagans that we're trying to reach, we get them to stop sacrificing to idols, stop drinking blood, stop fornications in their worship, all this stuff. And then they'll learn later on when they meet on Sabbath, it says Moses, which is an acronym or a a substitute for the the law. They'll they'll figure it out when the law is preached every Sabbath. Okay, that's a good idea. But you got to stop this stuff first. So you know, I feel, well, people are going to figure it out eventually. And we'll, we talk about the covenants all the time. Go to the website, go to any of our booklets that talk about it, and you can read it right there. So it's all explained. It's nothing new. Uh, but get rid of their uh, their idolatry first. That's the main thing they got to do. So uh, we know that, uh, you know, in uh, Jeremiah 31, 33 and Hebrews eight, ten that it is a renewed covenant in the New Testament or New uh, Covenant. And uh, you might want to call it uh, renewed or you might want to call it heart-applied covenant. Again, we're, we're, we're throwing words out that would just deer in the headlights. They're not going to know what you're talking about. So if we say New Testament, Old Testament, everybody knows those. So that's what we've chosen to do but they can learn the other later. Translating of the Bible has been ongoing since the third century, as I mentioned, and uh, understanding how air crept into the translation is very important and eye-opening, provided another level of insight into the truth. But we always have to revert to the purest and most accurate, as we can, of text from which uh, the source text that we can find, and there are more than 170 ancient manuscripts of the Hebrew scriptures. 170 Hebrew manuscripts extant today. But none of them is an original. Those, again, were lost. There were copies and copies and copies. And when they copy, that's a whole nother sermon. It's amazing the, the uh, effort that the copyists, the scribes, went to to copy one manuscript into another, uh, making a new copy. Uh, it was amazing the, the extent that they went to and to make sure there was no errors. And if they made one mistake, throw it out, especially with a the name. Uh, they even left in, uh, uh, in the Greek the Tetragrammaton in Hebrew, in the Septuagint. If you get the old Septuagint, you'll see the Hebrew name there in Yahweh's name in, in uh, the Hebrew uh, of the uh, Greek. Septuagint. So uh, the ancient Greek autographs of the New Testament are also elusive to the New Testament translators. Uh, The Textus Receptus, that's the one that most modern translations get their their text, uh, was also is the one used by modern uh, translations as well as the King James got a lot of it from that. It's a collection of Greek translations used in the King James. Not exactly what you'd call bulletproof. Uh, It was originally derived from seven manuscripts, none of them dating before the 11th century. Now we're into Masoretic times, and we know what the Masoretes did to hide the name with the vowel pointing and so forth. But uh, 11th century, that's 1,100 years after Yahshua. And most of them are later than that. Translating of ancient texts is not an exact science. It's fraught with difficulties, perilous twists and turns. Uh, None of them is more clear, or none of this is more clear, than the uh, production of the Greek translation used extensively by Bible translations today. A Dutch scholar named uh, Desiderius Erasmus produced that text. I'm not going to go through the story, but uh, we don't have a lot of time, but... uh, (laughs) It's it's a it's a it's a story of competition among who can be the first one to have a Greek translation. Uh, it's, it's a story of clumsy translation. It's a story of not enough manuscripts to go by, so we turn to the Latin, back translate it. Like in, he didn't have a an ex, uh, a complete Revelation book, so he uh, back translated it. From, uh, in fact, even one, one in some of the, uh, I think it was a revelation, I'm not sure, but one of his scribes was actually writing notes, and they picked up some of the text from other notes and not even in the, uh, the original manuscripts, because they didn't have it. But it's been, you know, through the years, they'll, they found more Greek manuscripts, some like, I've forgotten how many, 500 and some now, so they they pretty much erased any of those problems but uh, Erasmus was unable to locate a manuscript containing the entire Greek New Testament so he used several different trans uh, manuscripts two inferior texts from a monastic library in Basal in Switzerland and he compared them to a couple of other trans uh, manuscripts handwrote various corrections between the lines of the Greek script and sent them to the publisher so anyway, um, it's a long story. Uh, the final uh, manuscript was missing or uh, part of it was missing or mutilated, so he had to back translate those verses and you know, on and on and on. So then you wonder why you know, there's, there's problems sometimes, and you say, how did that get in there? Well, you get some idea that some of it was just uh, kind of thrown together the number of Greek manuscripts that he had was a grand total of seven. That's all he had. Now there's over 5,000 available to scholars and they keep coming up with you know, more and more refined text. These documents still exist and are known as the, uh, of a relatively poor quality and of late vintage. Um, anyway, they all, they all go back to the 11th, 12th, and 15th centuries. And the speed at which he worked resulted in a Greek New Testament that was, had some mistakes, poor quality. In fact, he said himself, no, I'm sorry, it wasn't that. It was uh, uh, FHA Scrivener. He said, it is in respect the most faulty book I know. Still, Erasmus' Greek New Testament became the first such work to be published and marketed uh, and became the authoritative Greek text. For over 200 years. And it was used by leaders of the Reformation as well. And it was this text that became the most significant source of the New Testament portion of the King James. So it's not as exacting as you might think when you go to translate. Look at some translation problems now. One of the most questionable verses in the King James is First John 5, 7 to 8. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. When Erasmus compiled his Greek translation, he didn't include this passage because he couldn't find it in the Greek, believe it or not. It wasn't there. We make a note on the RSB, footnote on it. There was a firestorm of protest because in the Latin versions it was there and and, uh, that was the Trinity, you know, and... uh, he responded, well, he left the passage out because I, I didn't find any, in any Greek manuscript available to me. But he said in the future editions of his Greek, he would, uh, he would include it if somebody found a Greek, a reliable Greek manuscript. Well, in time, as it turned out, there was one, written in Oxford by a Franciscan friar named Freud, who had back-translated the material from the Latin Vulgate. He, he put it into Greek. He said, oh, here it is. Here's the Greek. Erasmus kept his word. Nevertheless, included the, what they call the comma Johannium uh, in his third edition with a note stating he doubted its authenticity. So here we have a major Trinitarian passage that even Erasmus says, I doubt it. It isn't there. Anyway, that's just one little example. Keep in mind that all translators of the Bible have some bias because of their background, because of their knowledge, because of their uh, religious convictions. And they'll sometimes flavor things by that. They'll choose one word over another, one nuance over another, one meaning over another, simply on the basis of their own beliefs. And there's different kinds of translations, too. There's word for word. There's... uh, 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 equivalency translations, uh, thought for thought, you know, real loose, like the Living Bible. Guy produced that for his children so they could have a Bible to read. Real easy reading, but not very scholarly. Especially the New Testament. Now, I find that over and over. It's the New Testament that causes the problems. The Hebrew and the Old Testament pretty much dead on in every translation. There's not that much. There's some, but not that much. But the New Testament, ugh, then you got problems in some places. They were named by, oh, that's another thing. You know, the, the, the manuscripts didn't have names on them. The manuscripts didn't say Isaiah, Jeremiah. Uh, this is Matthew. Matthew, I wrote this. Matthew signed off. You don't know. Uh, these names were made, made later in the Bible, they were added. Uh, neither did the Hebrew or the Greek have punctuation. They didn't even have spaces between words. And in, uh, well, Hebrew, of course, uh, schools, they, uh, Greek, uh, they're all capital, capital letters. Take any sentence and take out all the spaces, make it all capitals. Take out all the punctuation. And then see how easy it is to translate that. You've got words all run together. It takes a little time. You can do it, but it takes a little time. I was going to show that, but uh, PowerPoint and I don't get along that well, so I, you just have to use your good imagination. So, you know, you got that, and this is what the Hebrew and the Greek. Go, down, go downstairs and look at the, uh, uh, the manuscripts we have down there, Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus, which are the, most, the, the more ancient, probably the most ancient of the Greek, and you'll see it. They're all run together. And you know how do they? You got to you got to know what you're doing. And a lot of these guys, they just weren't very good Hebrew scholars. Believe it or not, they didn't have the knowledge that they should have had. They're great Greek scholars, but there are other issues, um, and which led to some of the problems. Add to these difficulties for translators was to figure out things like idioms. Uh, We use idioms all the time. I hit the roof. Man, it was uh, uh, whatever. uh, You can think of some. Uh, Idioms that we use day day by day. Oh, wow. Uh, He's in deep, deep doo-doo, you know. (laughs) Whatever. What does that mean? Frenchman looks at that and says, what? You know. um, There's all sorts of things they had to figure out in the manuscripts, in the in the whatever they were translating from, there's nuances in vocabulary where a Hebrew word could stand for ten different things, because the Hebrew vocabulary is not very extensive like the Greek or the English. We've got three hundred thousand plus words in our our alpha, in our uh, vocabulary, and the Greek is about as many. So we can define it, get it down. That's what Greek is very accurate. It gets it right down. Well, Hebrew, you know, it's built on three and four letter roots. So all you do is add on to those roots and you change the meaning. And they all come from, you know, of that genre. They all come from that root. And so one word can be translated lots of different ways if you're not careful. They don't have the precision. It's a beautiful language. Hebrew is... Is uh, poetic. It's uh, artsy kind of uh, flair to it. It says things in beautiful ways. Read the Psalms. I mean, read the Psalms. If you ever get down in the dumps, read the Psalms. It'll pick you right up. You won't get through one Psalm, one chapter, I should say, before you're feeling a lot better. It just comes through. It's a beautiful. And they did a great job at translating it. It's kind of amazing how that happened, but uh, Yahweh, of course, was behind that, I'm sure. But uh, and languages change over time. You probably heard Ryan talk about our archaeologists, the first trip, second trip, at the, no, their first trip. Uh, I was there, but that was my son. Anyway, um, went into the, the, the uh, was it was at the Museum of the Scrolls or Dome of the, whatever it is, they got the Dead Sea Scrolls there. And uh, they went up to the Isaiah, which is the Isaiah scroll, and Ryan says, Hey, Ellie, can you read that? He goes up there, and, of course, this is an archaeologist, and he knows modern Hebrew. He speaks modern Hebrew. He goes, well, yeah, I can kind of make it out, but he had to study it a little bit. Even Hebrew changes. you would be like us. Someone gives you a book on Chaucer. You ever read Chaucer? It's half German. I mean, it's, that's how difficult that old English is. And, man, you just have to, you really got to work at it to figure out what he's saying. Some of the words are really weird because they have changed over time. We, we change in our language. Think of 2,000, 3,000 years. What's going to change in that time? Unbelievable. So that's something you got to deal with, too. Sometimes I feel, I feel for these translators. I don't mean to put them down. I'm just saying these are the, these are the circumstances they had to work with. Um, so anyway, let's look at some problematic verses in the New Testament. Readers look at Matthew 5.48 telling us to be perfect and ask how can that be done? Only Yasha was perfect. How How do you become therefore perfect? Well, if you understand the translation if you understand the Greek at least it says become ye therefore complete. Not perfect but complete. Rather than Doing something that's impossible in this life anyway. Sanctification is a process of overcoming with the aid of the Holy Spirit to become a complete person in truth. That's what it's talking about. Perfection has not been attained by anyone except Yahshua. As long as we're in the book of Matthew, let's take a look at Matthew 28. One, which says, in the end of the Sabbath, as it began dawn to dawn toward the first day of the week, you know, past feasts we'd have seminars of the morning going through a lot of these problematic passages but now that we've got them most of them covered in the uh, footnotes of our bible we really don't have to do that so much but these are the things that throw people these are the things that they get off into doctrinal things in churchianity and they say there it is in the end of the sabbath as it began dawn toward the first day of the week see end of sabbath first day of the week that's there it is Came the woman to the tomb, and this verse has led to the Easter sunrise resurrection belief. But the translation is an error. It should be translated literally. Literally, now late on the Sabbath, as it began to draw on, grow. I should say, try that again. Began to grow dusk or twilight. See, they didn't. They didn't always understand when sunset. Uh, ends a day and begins another day. They didn't always understand that. So, uh, as a, to grow dusk or twilight toward the first day of the week. The biblical Sabbath does not end at dawn, but at dusk. Had the translators been more studied in the biblical calendar, these things would, uh, they wouldn't have made such a blunder. Matthew 28:19, where baptism into the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost is missing, as I mentioned in the text, Luke 2.14 in the King James reads, Glory to G-O-D in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward man. You hear that around December 25th, over and over and over. When it should say, Glory to Elohim in the highest and on earth, peace among men of Yahweh's choosing. Makes a whole lot more sense, doesn't it? Because there's no peace among men today. Why would he, you know, plead for that? There will be peace on earth when righteousness reigns when Yahshua comes and sets up his his kingdom, of course. John one thirty one and thirty-two reads that John is baptizing with water. And it should be in water. Wrong preposition in the translation, because if they had translated the word baptize, they couldn't they couldn't they have to throw out their doctrine to sprinkling and pouring. Many believe that the fourth commandment is the only commandment that's not found anywhere in the New Testament. Oh, you can't find it. Not there in the New Testament. Well, it is. You know, Yahshua said, pray not that your flight be not on the Sabbath day. But the other place, uh, the Sabbath is clearly there in in the Greek. And overlooked verse is Hebrews 4 9. There remains, therefore, a rest to the people of Elohim. Look up, rest. Sabbatismos, a Greek word that means Sabbath. There it is, right in Hebrews. There remains a Sabbath for the people of Yahweh. Translators hid the word Sabbath by using the word rest instead of Sabbath and disguised an important truth. We've we've just talked about a few errors here, some of the major ones, uh, but they've caused centuries of faulty teachings. Some errors have been corrected in modern Bible versions, but not before a lot of misinformation was disseminated. Steve has said several times, go down and look in the library if you like, and uh, we've got the Catholic encyclopedia down there. You wouldn't believe how candid they are when it talks about the Sabbath day. They'll admit. They'll admit Sunday is a worship day. They don't say it's the Sabbath. They're just as honest as can be in that regard. It's kind of amazing. You put the truth right out there in front of somebody and they won't believe it. But, They know the truth. And believe me, uh, Catholic priests aren't stupid. They may do some stupid things, but uh, they're not stupid. They know. They know language. They know ancient language. And uh, they know that the Sunday is not the Sabbath. And they'll tell you. Anybody that graduates from seminary knows it. They know that every minister out there knows that the Sabbath is Saturday. But we worship on Sunday Sunday not as the Sabbath, but as our worship day, which basically, by default, has taken over to be a Sabbath, right? Actually not, because they don't even, they don't even rest on that day. Uh, but it's amazing how things go. The, the 1611 King James Bible is somewhat different from today's English language. Uh, certain words change over four centuries. And, or, the King James sometimes uses words not familiar to most people. Certain idioms... In Hebrew and Greek are a little difficult to understand here's some examples. afflict your soul we did that. We did that at his home. Was, what does afflict your soul mean? Well, it means to fast if you look in leviticus twenty three twenty seven i 'm not going to look these up take too long psalms thirty five thirteen there's uh, I think it was Lucas that went through and found some of these ancient words because uh, you know we who are Accustomed to the King James, I've figured a lot of them out, but, but new people and young people getting in, what does that mean? Like, betimes. What does that mean? Be times. It means early dawn. Like it's, I, I, it has to be a contraction like before times. Early dawn, before the day begins, Proverbs 13:24. Communicate. Well, we communicate when we talk, but it also means to share, as in Hebrews 13:16. Communications can mean associations, companionships, as in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Here's one, leasing. You ever come across that word, leasing? What does that mean? It means lying. Psalm 4, 2, and 5, 6. Let us, let us. That's like the opposite of what we would think. It means to restrain. See how flipsa uh, came flipping uh, in meaning, flipping meaning? Same with cleave. Cleave means to cut. Most, most of the time we think of a cleaver, cutter. But it also means to come together, to stick together. It means both. So there again, you've got to know the context as a translator. Mansions, we know as offices, positions in 14... John 14, 2. Prevent means to precede. That's kind of a tough one there. Precede. We won't precede the dead. We won't prevent them as they're called forward in the resurrection. Psalm 88, 13, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15. And here's one that really throws people. We would say re reward. Re reward. What does that mean? I think we had that in a Bible study one time. Well, I, that's not how you pronounce that. I I've kind of figured that out. It's, it means rear guard. The rear, rear ward is behind us, you see. Not re-reward, we're mispronouncing it. The old English probably said rear ward, meaning rear guard, you know. 1 Samuel 29 2. Well, the King James, which has been corrected and revised a half a dozen times through the years, is still a pretty substantial, accurate work on the whole. And its translators did a commendable job with the material that they had available. One important rule of translating is consistently broken by almost every translation except the (laughs) RSB, and that is change names especially Yahweh's name, anglicizing the names of people and places. Good translators know that names are, the sounds of names are brought through. They're transliterated, not translated, or otherwise they'd be changed. Well, a translator must never alter a person's name, and this is as true with uh, human beings as with the name of father and son. Some of this occurred when names were Grecianized and given Greek or Latin uh, equivalence you might say even what they use in their language as, as referring to this name in you know, Hebrew or, or whatever so that's what they use but uh, sometimes a Latin name was given to Hebrews we find that in scripture too so that comes through the translation so we have names like Elijah being changed to or Elia being changed to Elysses as in Luke 4.27. And Hezekiah becoming Ezekiel in Matthew 1.10. But none of these has suffered more than the Savior's name, Yahshua, be given a J original letter, initial letter, I should say, which isn't in the original. There was no J. And a Greek U.S. ending. So you end up with J-E-S-U-S, a name he never had. A name his mother never called him. A man named Peter Mikas, a Greek American born of Greek parents, raised in a Greek environment, once told of how he was led to study the New Testament for himself. He got curious. He said, I began to read my Greek Bible and I noticed that in many cases the English meanings didn't agree with those of the Greek. I also noticed that the Greek was not really Greek, but that Much of what was written was really Hebrew words spelled with Greek letters. I pursued this inconsistency and discovered that much of scripture was from a Semitic Hebrew original. This is a Greek finding out that the New Testament had a Semitic basis to it. To confirm this discovery, I went to the Jewish bookstores in Los Angeles. I bought many books, and to my astonishment, I found that almost everything in the New Testament had a parallel in the Old Testament or in other Jewish sources corresponding to or predating the time of the Messiah, which is what we've been preaching for years. There's so much evidence that the New Testament, the New Covenant, if you will, the renewed covenant, if you will. What do you want to call it? Is based in a Hebrew text. Hebrew fact. Hebrew history. It's all over in there. These were Hebrews writing it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They were Jews. Well, some say about Luke. But uh, Paul, Pharisaical Jew. Member of the Sanhedrin. You know, a Jew's Jew. I mean, this guy had it all. He was writing to Jews. He'd go to Jews first, like in, as we said, the synagogues, and communicated with them. So he would, he would be uh, uh, writing in his native tongue. So, anyway, the New Testament is a Hebraic book with Hebrew writers, customs, setting, grammar, syntax, and many other Hebraic traits. Christianity is an offshoot of Judaism. That's something people don't realize. You know, they, uh, their own Savior was a Jew. And all of the first early converts in the New Testament were, were Jewish. Because Joshua said, you go to the Jews first and then the Greeks. He himself was Hebraic. Maybe Aramaic speaking. Aramaic was kind of the language of the common man. But his words are Hebrew, not Greek. He was even instructing his followers to go only to Israel with the evangel. In uh, Matthew ten five to six, these twelve, Yahshua sent forth and commanded them, saying, "Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans, enter uh, you not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." Then we know that uh, Peter comes along and he takes it further into the Gentiles, and then Paul does the same. Because it was originally a Hebrew work, the New Testament has many Hebraic terms and phrases that make no sense in Greek; that it make no sense. And uh, even in English, we focused on that in past messages. You want to see that? Go to the website. They're all everything we got is on there. Virtually, I don't know if anything we have that isn't on the website, but um, there may be something. No language can be translated directly into another language. So, beginning in 1560 with the Geneva Bible, which uh, predates the King James, translators started the practice of adding italicized clarifying word. You'll find that in the King James. You'll find an italic word in there. Usually, you know, a short word, uh, preposition, article, something like that. And sometimes even more. So they did that as a help. But sometimes it doesn't help. It makes it worse. and uh, Because they didn't understand. So italicized words, uh, you see some of their doctrinal teachings come through because they added it. Example, Psalm 81, which mentions the new moon, a key element of the biblical calendar, as we know. Verse 4 reads, For this was a statute for Israel and a law of Elohim of Jacob. The Italicized word was is totally uncalled for. It should be it is a statute, not was. New moons are still key to the to Yahweh's calendar. And are a statute commanded in the word. For today. An interesting problem occurred at times in translating from the Hebrew. The English rendering of Revelation 19.16 reads. And he had on his vesture and on his thigh. A name written king of kings and sovereign of sovereigns. I think it's the companion that brings this out. There's a problem. The Hebrew word for thigh is regal. The Hebrew word for banner is dago. You know the resh. And the Dalit are very close letters in Hebrew. It's easy to confuse those two. So if you use the wrong letter, you're going to end up with thigh instead of his banner, which makes a whole lot more sense, right? His name's on his banner. The Hebrew letters, uh, because they're so similar, are easily confused. Being a Bible translator is not an easy occupation. I admit that. I mean, Wow. But um, it had to be done for, and I'm glad it was done for, for us English speakers. Uh, but that's why new translations come on all the time, because there's things they're clarifying, things that they're, you know, archaeology and, and, and studying and so forth that brought new truths out that were kind of buried at that time. And uh, so they come out with a new translation. And you can see some of these things. And it seems like the more new translations come out, the more they agree with what, uh, what we have found in the source manuscripts. Biblical Greek, for example, had four different words for love. Greek also had many verb forms that don't exist in English, let alone Hebrew. On top of that, the Greek used in the New Testament is different from classical Or modern Greek, just like the Old Testament Hebrew, different from modern Hebrew in many respects. And, of course, we know about the hell. You know, the three different words of hell in Greek. They're all translated hell, but that word uh, is translated different ways, or used, I should say, different ways in the Greek. Hades, Sheol, you know, used in the Old Testament. Carter It's a different kind of hell. that's reserved just for angels, and only mentioned one time in Second Peter. And so you've got to be careful on uh, just blindly accepting certain things until you look it up. Well, the notion, of course, of endless suffering in sulphurous flames is a myth. Brought out by hyper-imaginative Grecian storytellers like Plato, they came along and made up certain things. See, I've always wondered, you know, what what religion were the Greeks? They didn't really have a religion. They had a philosophy, which became their religion. They didn't answer. They didn't have have a religion that answered what happens after this life. What about salvation? They didn't have that. So they got philosophers trying to, you know, hammer it out. That, that was their religion. So they, this, whatever, Plato, Aristotle, and all these others, they, uh, they became uh, the priests, basically, in, uh, through, their, through their writings and through their philosophies. Now I think that's why when Paul went on Mars Hill, and they were all sitting around every day talking about new things, this was uh, not just something to entertain them. They were basically hammering out their, their religion, I guess. Well, it's time to come to, to a close here. But, you know, the Bible translations are there for us to, to use. We use them. We use them throughout the RSB. We use other translations when it clarifies, when it's closer to the original languages. Translating is not a science, it's an art. It's an art. Kind of like when I was working up at the uh, for the legislature and the guy was, we were going through bills and he said, you know, lawmaking is not a science. It's an art. And that's why they have amendments because they come along later and say, well, that didn't work. You know, I did this had this law in my community. That didn't work. We got to amend that. So they come and make a new law. Same kind of deal here. You know, we, we find that more truth, whoops, we got to we got to sharpen our pencil a little bit and clarify that in another translation so we're more accurate. And that's the way it is. It's an ongoing thing. But uh, it's also a very, I'm sure for those who are doing a very satisfying thing to get Yahweh's word to communicate with other people otherwise wouldn't know it. So I hope that... Uh, It's helped a little bit in some ways, and we could have gone a lot farther in a lot of different ways. But um, anyway, maybe whet your appetite. May Yahweh bless you.